And welcome to Peer Pressure for today. My guest is Carl Kennedy of The Rods and thrash metal producer from the 80s. We will talk to him about The Rods producing Ronnie James Dio and theories about thrash metal and metal in general. So please stay tuned for that. Thank you to Lita Martinez for editing the podcast. And thanks to Liz Berg for all the other podcast duties that she is in charge of and does fabulously. Stay tuned. We're WFMU. Carl, are you there? I'm here, Diane. How are you? He's here. Folks, please welcome Carl Kennedy. Now, of course, there's no audience. You won't hear any audience. But uh, thanks for, for coming on the show, Carl. You're welcome, Diane. And I'm used to having my name announced and not hearing any applause. So. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing new for me. <laughs> oh, goodness. So thanks for coming on. And Carl is uh, the drummer for the Rods. I just found out two minutes ago that he was the first drummer in Manowar. Can you can you just talk about that for a little bit? Because I don't think that that's a, a very well-known uh, uh, piece of information. Um, you know, we're all upstate guys, so we you know, all knew each other, and Joey had formed, David and Joey had worked together in a band called Thunder. You know, they kind of had different directions musically, and so I started playing with Joey and uh, with Ross and, and Eric, and, uh, you know, we started working on songs, and eventually a showcase for EMI, and um, you know, recorded the demo and so on, and uh, that was it. Great band, great songs, really, you know, a great part of my history in terms of seeing that music evolve and just how phenomenal it was. And were the rods happening at the same time? The rods were getting signed at the same time, and so for me it came down to having to make a choice between the rods and Manowar. And so for me as a songwriter, you know, the rods was a better fit for me. It was a tough choice, and uh, you know, but it was the right one for me. Oh, but what a great thing to be able to be involved in to at least sort of sort of kick off. I mean, Manowar's got its own legacy. Absolutely. Yeah, you produce a first record from Anthrax, Fistful of Metal, and, uh, and actually other stuff too, right? That's right, yeah. Spreading the Disease, Armed and Dangerous. And the first album was with, with Neil Turbin, vocalist. I did get so to see them a couple times line. with him, yeah. He wore uh, uh, chain mail. I remember he wore chain mail on stage. He did, and, and uh, <laughs> we did a show. We did a festival in France with Jack Starr. Rhett Forrester was the lead vocalist. Then. Oh, wow. And, and Neil came up and, and sat in and did a couple songs. And he had his chainmail on, and the steps were really high. And I remember it was it was a little bit awkward for him, but um, but Neil's cool. I mean, I love his new band, and you know he's never he's just been a balls out kind of singer the whole time. He's never never strayed from what his beliefs are. And uh, hmm. I have a lot of respect for Neil, and we've remained friends over the years. Oh, that's killer. I don't I don't know what his new band is. I'm gonna have to uh, to check that out. You know, I love that first Antrax record. I really do. And I guess, you know, I mean, being their first record and being sort of like almost like a new brand of music, like what was your, you know, what were your thoughts when you were, you know, working? I mean, there's a lot of records that you worked on that were really, you know, like Exciter and Hellstar and Possessed. And I mean, there's a lot of things that you worked with where that sort of genre wasn't really around for very long and you were sort of breaking ground with those records yeah absolutely it was it was kind of like uh, flying by the seat of our pants on some of it but for some reason with anthrax when i first heard them it was just i was blown away by the band and it was obvious to me that it was a changing of the guard one of the things that that occurred to me was this band is phenomenal and they're going to be huge and i knew that some of my friends in the music business, I would play them different things, tell them about the band, and, and they were like, this stuff's 
socks. These guys are insect <laughs> music. This is horrible. <laughs> they're wearing and, white and sneakers. <laughs> yeah, no, they're horrible. These guys, it's just awful. I'm like, these guys are going to be huge. So I had a bet with one of my friends. They said, I said, this band will eventually be a gold or platinum act without a doubt. They laughed. They were peeing themselves. They thought it was hysterical that this stuff could ever find mainstream acceptance. And, and that was uh, particularly anthrax? But of course, they, yeah, ultimately yeah. I had the last laugh. But it was anthrax. They just thought it was a joke. They thought that wow. type of music, and anthrax in particular, was just never going anywhere, and that I was way off base. You know, I'm not right very often, but fortunately for in that case, I was able to have the last laugh. Well, that's great. And, then, and what was your experience with them in the studio? I mean, it was their first record, so were you really guiding them on a lot of technical levels also, or...? You know, they were young, and they were just not, I would say, initially, they were phenomenal players, maybe not quite as gelled as you need to be sometimes in the studio, but they caught on. These guys were sponges, and they just knew what they wanted to do. They had the direction. They they were focused. You know, it was great. And I think when they came back, they brought a different singer in for the, when we started working on Armed and Dangerous and right. spreading the disease. Mm-hmm, yeah, and they brought in a new singer, and we worked, and we did some pre-production, and we started working in the studio. And after about a week, I just said, you know, guys, this guy's not going to take you to the next level at all. They said, we'll get Johnny on the phone called Johnny Z. Johnny said, let me speak with the band. They went into the conference room. Five minutes later, they said, Johnny wants to talk to you. And Johnny said, put him on a bus. And that was it. (laughs) They were in the middle of doing their second album, and they fired the singer in the studio. Goodness. Most bands would never have the balls to do that. Wow. But they did. It was the, the right thing for them. And then, of course, we put out the word, and I was able to bring joey in and uh, they loved him they you know right away it was you could tell it was the fit oh i had no idea that is the greatest story oh my goodness (laughs) but i mean you have to understand these guys were young for them to do what they did was they gained my total respect because most bands would go well we've got to plug on we're here we're in the studio everybody's gonna flip craziness and they're like that's it he's out and i felt really bad telling the kid you know we had to put him on a bus and send him home and he was devastated but you know just wasn't the right fit for the band, that's all. Wow, no kidding. I do have a comment from somebody here that says spreading the disease is a masterful production job. I appreciate that comment. Uh, You know, those were early days in recording, and, uh, you know, we struggled technically on a lot of stuff. The band was great, and that's what shines through. I'd like to to get to a little bit of music that you've programmed, and then we're going to come back and talk to you about your band also, and uh, some other projects that that you've worked on and things that you appreciate. And the first thing that we're going to hear is going to be what? It's called Unbroken by Avigal, Shmulek Avigal, who was the... uh, he sang on the Heavier Than Thou album for the Rods, and I met him through Jack Starr. Oh. We became we became good friends. He, you know, and, and actually Shmulek was a huge part of the uh, Rods' new CD. He he helped set us up in the studio. He worked in in the studio with us. Um, he actually recorded Ronnie Dio's vocals for the uh, two songs that Ronnie did with us. Yeah, Shmulek was a huge part of helping us set up studios, work on the album. Just just a great guy. And where's he uh, from? He's actually from Israel, but oh, okay. uh, lived in France and Holland for, for years. I mean, left after he was probably early 20s. So, and then he, then he moved here and stayed with me for a while and uh, he came to America and then uh, that's it. He's been here ever since. Phenomenal singer anyway. Shmulek put, a, put together a new band called Avigal and he asked me to come in and, and work on some drum tracks for him. So... I did that. He played on the majority of his album for him, and I was happy to do it because he's 
helped me so much. He's a great guy. So anyway, he's um, looking for a record deal now or, and or going to release this uh, by himself. But either way, it's it's great music. People should hear it. Awesome. So that's what we're going to hear next. My uh, my guest is Carl Kennedy, famed metal producer and uh, drummer of the rod still and currently. So this is Unbroken from Abigail, and we will return. Stay tuned.
times were so much colder than my father was a soldier then. So three choices there from Carl Kennedy. Uh, We just heard the animals when I was young, the kinks with all day and all of the night, and Avigal with Unbroken. And what would you like to say about those songs, Carl? The song All of the Day and All of the Night, which the kinks, everybody seems to know you really got me, but for me, All of the Day and All of the Night was the song that struck me. I started playing when I was 13, and, you know, we were poor. And it was like I got this crappy little drum set, and I really just had a crappy little record player, and it was... You know, I could barely hear stuff on it. and So for me, all the day and all the night, everything was top 40, very commercial. So all of a sudden, all the day and all the night came on, and I hear these nasty guitar and this... But it was the snare drum and the approach to the drumming that really caught me. So I started playing my snare drum harder and started... I discovered rim shots, because at the time I hadn't taken lessons. So I was just kind of got the drum set eventually after begging for years and finally got this crappy set and that. so I discovered rim shots and how to make the snare drum kind of sound like that but it was because of that and I've always loved that sound and that approach and uh, you know I still hear that in a lot of drummers I mean to this day that kind of that same basic raucous kind of snare drum sound that everybody seems to love but that was what attracted me to that and the animals when I was young you know the, the songs that were on the radio for me I was listening to all these happy songs and Eric Burden you know always something about Eric Burden was always dark to me edgy you know so with the band like that song was really not a typical top 40 kind of song i don't know how how well that song actually charted but it was a big song for me and there were things in the song in terms of the drumming the triplets there were things that um, really struck me as well and you know that was my first kind of learning about a triplet and just the dynamics of the song and so on so it was always really a big tune for me and there's a little there's a fill in there that the drummer does that uh, you know i still play that type of thing so anyway, it was a big deal for me in terms of learning the song, but Eric Burden always just always had something about his music, his voice. It was always something. He always seemed to pick a great band. Even War was a great band. I mean, the guy just always knew great musicians. At what point did you notice, and I don't know if you'll know the answer to this or not, but that you were really like listening to the drums on um, on whatever you were listening to regular radio or you know your record collection, like where you kept on sort of picking out like drum technique and that kind of thing. You know, for me, and it's it's funny because it's it'll sound like a totally stupid story. But it's a true story. When I was maybe five, went to a wedding, a reception at a VFW somewhere, and where I lived in Waverly, Pennsylvania. And I walk in, and I see the band set up. The thing that struck me was this drum set. It was like the blinding white light shining down on the drum set and the Alleluia singer. <laughs> That's what it was like for me. I saw this drum kit, and I went, wow. And I was just transfixed. I couldn't look away, and I watched it the whole time. I'm like, oh, that is so cool. So from the time I was five, all I thought about was drums, wanting to play drums. As I said, we were poor, and, you know, my mother, my parents were separated, so it was just my mother and I, and it was just not financially feasible for her until I was much older. And But I'd always wanted to play the drums. And, of course, somewhere around seventh grade, I think, I 
tried to get take drums in school, but they only had clarinet, so I actually started playing clarinet. Still have never really became quite the clarinetist I should have, you know. But uh. well, and imagine the uh, the shape, the sound that metal would have now if you were really a clarinetist. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. I don't quite know. a few processing units. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, so can you just sort of get us up to speed in terms of what's going on with the rods right now? Is that all you wanted to say about, because um, we spoke yes, about Abigail no, that, before, because yeah. uh, Carl is a founding and uh, long-standing member of the rods, and you guys have been around forever, and um, I believe it's the same lineup, is that right? It is, we're the same three guys. I mean, initially we started with a bass player, Steve Starmer, and um, Steve, um, we parted ways with Steve after recording most of the first album, and then Craig Gruber was with us for a while after that and then Gary Bordenero was our bass player and that was it for the Never Look Back. But you know what we're doing now is David's being inducted into the Syracuse Hall of Fame, Music Hall of Fame. Uh, I need to mention that I had the opportunity to see the Rods at South by Southwest. You guys played at the Rusty Spurs and uh, it was a an amazing show just and how much do you guys play out and i didn't you go to europe this year we did actually we supported dio disciples in europe and we did the download festival and we did grass pop in belgium as well Mm. we were there for about a month that's awesome uh, yeah it was a great it was a great time you know and hearing the dio songs and the band the band obviously ronnie's band was always phenomenal but you know hearing toby and ripper they just did a great job bringing the songs to life, keeping them alive, and, and uh, it was great. It was great. It was very emotional at times, but uh, oh yeah, it was very cool. And there were a lot of Rods fans who came out, and that, for me, that's what it's about anymore. Like, biggest joy I get besides actually playing my drums is the uh, meeting the fans. And uh, for years, we, we just didn't know that people cared about us. You know, we thought we were basically a forgotten item, and we had a manager who told us that nobody gave a damn about the band and you guys suck and so (laughs) that's kind of how we just sort of wound up we kind of wound down and i went into production and you know everybody just kind of went their ways gary started playing with um, savoy brown and david opened a restaurant and started doing soul things but we just kind of you know like okay we kind of whimpered off for a while you know it was great in recent years to find out that we have fans around the world and they've been loyal fans so i mean meeting them that's it's the highlight for me i can't spend enough time with the fans that's great and you know i mean and the fans get to tell you where you made a difference for them and the rods are just have always been a really solid band my thought about the rods is that you never really wavered in terms of like you didn't try like the disco album or especially when when metal was less than the favored flavor you guys really stayed true well you know i have to say diane initially starting the band when david and i started this band we were um, we started recording right away with chris bubach who um, actually engineered the first metallica album and has done a ton of things since but uh, he was a good friend of mine so we started recording with him while he was in fredonia university going to school so we would go play, and we we were doing cover material, but we were doing original material. And we played in Ithaca, which was um, our hometown, and, and this was a big deal for us. You know, we got a gig. It was tough to get a gig doing what we did. Yeah. And it had only been recently that I had kind of made it into the little jazzy, clicky thing. I'd played with a band right before the Rods called the Dean Brothers. Annie Burns was the singer in the band from the Burns Sisters, and it was my first time of being accepted into the clique, where when I walked into a music store, somebody actually wanted to wait on me, which <laughs> prior to that didn't happen. You know, you go in, and you're trying to get someone to help you, and they're like looking at you like, yeah, whatever, dude. <laughs> and so now they, they would come over, Carl, how are you? Nice to see you. You know, oh, that was a wonderful gig you played with the Dean Brothers. And all of a sudden I was like in the, 
you know, suddenly overnight I had changed to something cool. Now we play with the rods and we empty the place. One of the guys who was a guitar tech and, you know, a guy I'd known, he goes, he's drunk outside holding up the building, just, what are you doing? This music sucks. You guys are horrible. Why are you doing this? The 60s are dead, dude. This is horrible. This is the worst music I've ever heard. <laughs> and so at that point, I stop. I'm outside the building. I'm looking down at him. He's kind of half on the on the ground, squatting. And wow, am I really making a mistake here? And I look at him like, what, I'm going to listen to this drunk guy <laughs> leaning up against the wall? No, we cleared the club. I'm proud of it. We were loud. We were obnoxious. That's what we're supposed to be. And okay, you just stay there and enjoy your evening. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, you're right. We, we've never kind of wavered from that. It is who we are, and, and it's when we reformed the band, it was exactly who we are. And I think the Vengeance album kind of proves that that's what the Rods do. I mean, we all write different. David and I write different material, and ultimately the Rods, when we play together, that's what comes out. Yeah, it really shows. I just, yeah. It's great to be able to have you here and to just be able to, to sort of recognize that. I do see the Rods as a, as a band that, that hasn't really gotten its due, but I think that, I mean, you know, I have a million favorite bands that, that nobody knows, except for maybe my listeners when I get to, to play them and stuff. So Appreciate you having me on, so that people <laughs> maybe didn't know of us can, can hear a Rod song. Yeah. Well, let's see, I, earlier in the... Uh, in the program, I played uh, "Let It Rip," and then I did want to play the code later. That's got uh, vocals from Dio on it. And and what was the? Um, how did it come about that Ronnie sang on that record? David and Ronnie were cousins. Mm-hmm. Was David so was in Elf? Is that right? David was in Elf with yeah. Ronnie. Mm-hmm. And um, at one point recently, like in the later years here, last bunch of years, um, David was going to join Ronnie's band. Ronnie had invited him to play with Dio. I think there's a lot of the material written for Third Wish was stuff that was possibly going to be submitted for a Dio album. And uh, so, But David and Ronnie were close. It just came about. They were sitting, talking, and Ronnie said, you know, I'll sing a couple songs. It just kind of emerged from a conversation they were having about where we were. And so Ronnie agreed to sing two songs. And in doing so, we wound up, David had written Metal Will Never Die, and then uh, I had a song that I'd written The Code. The code was perfect for Ronnie, as was uh, Metal Will Never Die. So just got everything together, and when he came in, he knocked it out. And it was a great experience, and it was, you know, he hadn't been diagnosed at the time. And it was just a, we had fun, and he was phenomenal. And, and for all the musicians I've worked with, and I've worked with a ton of musicians in the studio, and taking nothing away from the great musicians I've worked with, Ronnie was just so far above everybody I've ever worked with in terms of talent and professionalism and just an amazing vibe the guy brought. So it was a it was a huge experience for me personally because it was, a, first of all, Ronnie Dio was somebody who I played in a band with, as a matter of fact, the guitarist from 805, I just mentioned uh, being inducted into the Syracuse Hall of Music Hall of Fame. I was in the band with David at the time. We rehearsed at the same house. Our, the musicians, we all kind of, they lived in the house, so both bands rehearsed in the house. We were in the garage. They were in the living room. I knew Elf. I knew the guys in Elf. I used to go see them. But Ronnie was became a hero. As he, his music, I loved his stuff. And uh, for me, it was a career highlight to have him sing a song that I'd written. Of course, it turned very bittersweet because of the diagnosis and the ultimate, you know, untimely death. I think it, uh, it was sad. Oh yeah, I mean a, a huge loss to the world and not just a world of music. But well, thanks, absolutely. Thanks for sharing your recollection about that because that just everything that I have always heard about Dio and in general, I think a lot of people have heard about him. It's just his professionalism, his kindness, his straightforwardness, and his really focus. It's not surprising, but that's a, that's just really a great a great thing to uh, to be able I, to tell people. So you're absolutely right in 
they did an I did an article for Sweden Rock magazine, which uh, they were talking about Ronnie, and he said, you know, one of the things he goes, the hardest thing is to find a counterbalance to it, to find somebody who has something negative to say about Ronnie. Mm. Is just as a person, everybody loves Ronnie as a person. I mean, we all know he's a great artist, but as a person, nobody really has has ever had anything bad to say about him. Quite the measure of the man there. Yeah, absolutely. And I was uh, I was fortunate enough to I attended the High Voltage Festival last summer. Heaven and Hell did the tribute to him and had a number of vocalists on stage performing the songs and mm-hmm. it was really obvious that they needed three vocalists to cover his range. And it, and, it, and it was a really it was a real bittersweet kind of situation. I had already chosen to go to the festival and then the Heaven and Hell Dio tribute was added afterwards. And, you know, you could just see it in Tony Iommi and, you know, all those guys' faces. I mean, it had to have been rough, but um, he gave us so much. Yeah, quite the legacy. Yeah, and at least, you know, we have that. I mean, we lose people every day who there's no contribution from them, and and that's all we have while we're here on the the planet. So, you know, it's great to recognize that, and and it's great to recognize the rods. And then we're going to get back to some... uh, some stuff that you're playing because you're paying homage to band. So this first thing is uh, the Who, I think, right? That's right. And uh, what does this song do for you? You know, this song for me was a, it was kind of a turning point in my drumming. Um, first of all, it was the emergence of that heavy music, the style that I was being drawn to. But Keith Moon was a crazy over-the-top drummer. As I was saying, you know, most of the songs, I didn't have a drum instructor at the time, and I listened to records and they were basically 45s this was and so they were very commercial straight ahead kind of drumming tap 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 suddenly with this song i was what the hell is this this guy's crazy (laughs) you know the way he's playing drums so for me it was a song that i just played and studied and just became a big template of my style it's just like okay i get this important song for me. My guest here on the line is Carl Kennedy of The Rods, and he is uh, talking about music that is near and dear to him. The next song we're going to hear is uh, By The Who. You'll know it. Enjoy. We'll be back in a minute. I know you deceived me Now here's a surprise that you have cause there's magic in my eyes I can see
And we are back with Carl Kennedy. Are you there, Carl? I'm here. Excellent, excellent. And we just heard Cult of the Poison Mind. And so that is solo for you, is that correct? It is. It's actually, I thought I would do this for you for your show, and, and hopefully uh, all the listeners have still stayed there and no one's run away. But uh, <laughs> it's, it's a song from my solo album that I'm doing called Madman. It's a demo when I write songs, obviously, and I've done this for years with the Rods. When I write songs for myself or for the Rods, I always demo them myself. So that's me playing everything, except uh, my friend Ronnie came by and threw a little guitar solo on there, a rough track for me quickly. So that's me singing and and playing everything, but um, it's a demo. It was inspired by Warren Jeffs. I was watching um, Warren Jeffs' wives speaking after he was arrested, and I've always been kind of fascinated with that Svengali-type figure and, and cult issues and just how odd it is that people can get sucked into those things and kind of be blindsided by it, but yet actually be totally immersed in that culture. That's what the song is about. Oh, tell me about the solo LP. Like, how much material is there? Is What's, uh, what's going on well, with it? Well, all the material's been written. I have uh, a number of guest artists and people actually putting different tracks on for me. I've got two more drum tracks to finish, so and I've got guest vocalists and so on. So it's getting close. I mean, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited. I wanted it to be songs that, I, A, I own myself and not MCA, because we had an MCA publishing deal early on, and they took a number of songs that I'd written that hadn't been released. So I wanted to make sure I owned everything and that I had written the songs 100% myself. So that's what the album is. So, But I'm excited about it. Sort of long overdue for me. I write a lot of material and probably written close to half of the rock material over the years as well and uh, there's other things so and then do you like when you write for the rods or or with the rods in mind do you sometimes just get be like oh well this really this isn't going to fit as a rods piece like is that sort of what the solo lp is about in that way or it is i mean a lot of these songs are not um, songs that would work for the rods um you know some of them probably would but but the majority of it are songs and that's why david and i we did the hollywood album and we did it as the called the hollywood project because we both had written songs that really didn't fit kind of as a rod song and uh, you know, we have a we have a joke in the rods that if it's uh, more than three chords or takes longer than five minutes to learn, it's not a good rod song. <laughs> 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 so we kind of stick with our basic format. But, uh, you know, there's certain songs, it's a three-piece, the rods are three-piece, and, you know, the, you have to have a certain energy. And, and so let's talk about the cactus track, <clears throat> Parchment Farm, that we heard. Well, you know, I wanted to play something by Carmine Apathy or with Carmine Apathy playing on it. As I said, I didn't have a drum instructor, so at some point, I, I had had a drum instructor very briefly, and this guy was a local guy, and he was he was really just mean. I mean, just not nice. I wanted to play match grip, and at the point where I started taking lessons from him, everybody was traditional grip. He was very negative. He was a very he, he was a NAR drummer, National Association of Rudimental Drummers. So I asked him about oh, that, wow. and he told me what it was. And I was like, "That's impressive. You know, how how long would I have to study?" He goes, "Oh, you could never do that." <laughs> so he was just so rude to me. I was just so pissed. So I'm like, I'm gonna be a I'm gonna be a, a nard drummer. But anyway, this guy was so negative. This is why I stopped taking lessons. And and ultimately, I did become a nard drummer. Oh, I was going to ask you. It took me about a year and a half. I got certified. Um, You know, I busted my ass to do it, but it was the best thing I could have done. So I'm reading Cut to Carmine Apathy, and I've been playing for maybe five years now. I see this ad in the Musicians Union paper that says, Drum Lessons, Carmine Apathy. Carmine had been my favorite drummer from the Vanilla Fudge. and Oh, yeah. I just had loved him from, from day one. He was a great showman. He was a great drummer. I was a huge fan. And I had gone to see, uh, see him live. I had seen them with Cream in 
Buffalo, New York. Cream's equipment didn't arrive, so the fudge did the whole show. I was just blown away. I was blown away. I was very disappointed I didn't see Cream because they were another one of my idols, Ginger Baker. But uh, mm. anyway, I call Carmen Amps the phone. I wind up taking lessons from Carmine for about a year. Wow. And uh, it totally changed my, my drumming, my life as a musician, because Carmine taught me first how to read music, but also he taught me about an attitude, you know, like just play because you love it. Don't play because you want to get laid. Don't play because you want to be rich. Play because you love music. And he had a lot of good things to say, and it was, you know, he just really taught me a lot of basics and fundamentals, not just about drumming technique, but he also helped me with drumming technique. You know, I still apply those things to this day, but he was a huge influence on me. It, was, it came at a great time in my life. And uh, I was then living in Boston. I used to drive in from Boston to Hempstead to uh, take lessons. And, wow. Uh, and it, was just, it was a great experience. And, and also studying with uh, Tony Williams was also another great experience for me because another monster drummer and just a, but, a, but an amazing musician like Carmine. I still apply the musical things that Tony Williams had taught me to my productions to this day. Well, it's a good thing that you didn't get discouraged by that first drum teacher. Yeah, I wonder where that guy is. I bet he didn't even play in a local band. He was just some some hack. I don't know, but whatever. He was very discouraging. But now, uh, now. you know, it made me more made me more determined. You know, whatever the case, it made me more determined. I'm like, fine, whatever. Oh yeah, whatever it uh, takes. You know, it didn't you know? He didn't discourage me. Hopefully, there were other drummers he didn't discourage as well. So. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, everything happens for a reason. Oh. It was motivating for me. That's right. It was motivating. It, it wasn't a negative. It was, turned it into a positive. And I wanted to ask you. You had worked with uh, Blue Cheer. At some point, I did. Mm-hmm. Paul Whaley is another drummer that you know. I saw them on American Bandstand, and I saw wow. these guys with long hair, loud, obnoxious. I went, "Wow, that's that's what I want to do." Paul Whaley was wailing on the drums. I mean, killing. Pardon the pun, but killing the drums. I mean, I don't think I'd seen anyone hit the drums that hard. <laughs> so after that, I started playing harder, and I said, you know, I started breaking cymbals until I learned some technique. You know, I used to break cymbals like crazy. I haven't broken cymbals in you know thirty years now, but. But um, back then I was killing my drumsticks, denting the heads, and cracking cymbals. I'm sure there was plenty of, like, blood all over the snare, too, right? Yeah, well, you know, definitely had my share of blisters and bleeding. But uh, I should send Paul a bill for all that stuff. (laughs) Probably responsible for me spending a lot of money back then. But Blue Cheer, working with them was great because going into the studio was a great experience for me. I always loved Dickie's voice. I always loved the band. And, of course, watching them work, you know, you realize these guys were, like, part of the originators, you know, Blue Cheer, Black Sabbath. I mean, these guys are like the people who invented the, the genre. And to, to work with them in the studio and to look at, to watch the thought process, you know, see how Paul came up with things. He was really an innovative drummer. And Dickie was so solid on bass and his vocal. And it's just, it was a great experience. It was great to um, to work with them. And it was just great to experience those musicians up close. That is, that is super. And, then, and the record that you worked on them was The Beast is Back. Is that right? Mm-hmm. That's right. What what uh what era was that? Uh, that was eighty three, eighty four, okay. eighty five, somewhere in there. I'm not sure. Was that a Megaforce release? It was. It was right. Yeah, that's what I thought. I remember it standing out at the time, kind of like, oh, Megaforce is putting out Blue Cheer because there was all this, yeah. the thrash stuff going on. Yeah, it was an odd odd marriage, really. But uh, mm-hmm. Johnny Johnny and Marsha were always cool, you know. And I remember uh, talking to Johnny, and he had told me that at um, at his wedding, what he gave out for. Uh, I guess you know gifts, whatever you call them, like that you give to the people that show up. Um, he gave he, he gave away yeah the favors was a, a copy of Alice Cooper's Killer <laughs> <laughs> LP. Everybody got Killer LPs at his wedding. I was like, this guy's pretty cool. 
<laughs> I haven't talked to John in a while, but always, always a treat to talk to John. Yeah, never, no. never a boring guy. Oh, definitely not. Definitely not. Yeah, for uh, you know, just another one of those people. You know, Carl and I were talking off mic before just about like why I do radio, and and then of course, and what you were sharing about your conversations with, with Carmine about you know doing it because you love it, and these uh, specials that I get to do, it's like yeah, we're talking about music. Like it's you know like oh I saw this band here and there, and and those are the conversations though that you know they, they'll. They'll maybe jumpstart you into listening to some new band and then going to see some new band and, you know, hanging out with a different group of folks. And it's just, it just impacts your life in such a great way. And there's so many of us who really, music is it. No, and it's uh, cool. It's like getting together with friends and talking music. I love it. Yeah. As a matter of fact, somebody posted on your board um, about Stray. So this band Stray, I'm going to check them out because they're, they're raving about this band. So I've never heard of them. So I'm going to check them out. So now I. I've been exposed to some new music as See, well. See, there you go. And it says that Steve Harris is a huge fan of Stray, so there you go. Right. <laughs> but yeah, you know, we're just like the collective music heads here and, uh, you know, trying to uh, to get the word out and uh, to each other and to, to others. And I think the next thing that you wanted to feature was a band that you had produced from Miami. The band's called Blunkin, that's right. It's a band I just produced. Of the uh, Actually, this is the edited version. You know, when the, the drummer from Young Turk had this new band and he called me and we've been good friends he's like my son since i worked with him and uh, so he called me and said a new band he was telling me kind of a prog band kind of like opeth and and uh, so i'm like, like opeth wow anyway he sends me a demo and they want me to produce this this record so i'm listening to music i'm listening and listening finally I call him back oh this guy it's like a roller coaster ride this is like you know this is like an amusement if you had if you guys were an amusement park ride they'd have a shirt that said i survived blunken yeah. Because I guess because in Miami and we we wound up recording it here in Pennsylvania, don't really have big rooms except for the very expensive studio. So it's tough for an independent production to go in and get a big drum room down there. It's, it's just so much dance music. But I guess it's kind of where they were influenced. They had like their influences, everything from like Metallica, heavy music. The songs are seven and eight minutes long, and then you're in this heavy music, and then suddenly you're like on the beach in Jamaica smoking a joint. It's like, what <laughs> happened here? Wow! It's just this musical journey of just craziness. This this band has. Anyway, I loved it, and I wanted producing the album and great guys. And so this is the edited version of the like eight minute song. Very good. It's called Embers. Is the song. And all right, so we are going to hear that. We will be back. My guest is Carl Kennedy. We are uh, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope. This is Blunken. Stay tuned.
And we have returned. My guest is Carl Kennedy of The Rods and Mega Producer. And we just heard Mountain, Blood of the Sun. That was Carl's choice. Carl, what would you like to say about that mountain track? First of all, Mountain was a big influence on me. And uh, when I was 15, I was almost 16, a bunch of us jumped in a car, and the guys were a little bit older than I was, and we all went to Woodstock. And I had no idea what Woodstock was going to be like, but, yeah, it was a crazy experience for me. But I stayed for everybody, and after the first time we went back to the camp, the next time I just stayed there, and I was just in the field the whole time. I was actually able to find a little piece of me in the video of me standing watching Hendrix, and I was I finally got the video. I'm like, I know I was there. There was nobody there the morning Hendrix was playing, and I was right wow. in the center stage, and I found it. It was really cool. Oh, me, my God, that's so great. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was really cool. One of the songs, Mountain, came on, and this song in particular, when Mountain came on, I was just, you know, you're exhausted, you're stoned, you're, like, just contact high, you're, like, you're just a mess, you know, but you're having a great time. And I heard this song, and I heard Mountain, and Leslie's voice and the guitar tone, it was just so heavy, and I just I fell in love with it. It's actually, if you listen to the song, and I did this without realizing, and hopefully I won't be sued, but uh, <laughs> Blood, of the, Blood of the Sun and Burned by Love, I kind of, like, there's a little to me, I kind of hear the influence of the riff and I inadvertently, obviously, you know, kind of cop that whole vibe from it. But always, I just always love that thing about Mountain, so. Great choice. And then we heard the, the track from Blunk and we heard an edited version of, of Embers. Yeah, they've got a real, uh, a varied flavor going on. It is. There's just so many different things going on there. And there are mm-hmm. Latin influences and totally heavy and just very musical and just some great stuff. And I mean, once you listen to it, and you really sit down and like eight minutes into it and you realize, wow, that was like a crazy ride I just took. You learn to love it. But, you know, it's definitely not the uh, three-minute uh, pop kind of songs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, good. That's their, you know, their expression. And, and uh, as long as they're happy playing, they'll figure out something. Something will work out for them. Yeah, absolutely. And it was great working with them. I mean, I love producing them. They were a great band. They were on top of everything. And so you have your own, do you have your own studio? I have a, my own little home studio, but mm-hmm. we actually recorded this in a local studio, a commercial okay. studio here. Mm-hmm. Got it. The, um, so we do have a question about, um, do you have any recollections about working with Possessed and Larry Lalonde in, uh, in particular? Well, you know, I do about, I mean, first of all, the Possessed guys, and Debbie Abono, who um, oh, yeah. just passed away recently, and she, I, I you know, she passed Debbie. away the same day that Dio passed away. Right, and uh, you know, it was a shame. And Debbie had had fought, and I'm not sure what she passed away from. I don't know what it was, but I know that she had struggled with skin cancer issues, mm-hmm. and uh, for for years. I mean, since the '80s, and uh, so. You know, I remember her explaining some things to me about you know where her life was headed, and you know I'm I'm happy she lived as long as she did. She was a great lady. Yeah. And uh, but working with Possessed, you know, I stayed at Debbie's house and uh, do, doing pre-production, and the guys were fantastic. And but these guys were like maybe 16 years old. We were doing pre-production for their second album at 16, and we were <laughs> recording it over Easter break because they were all in school. Right. And wow. no one could miss. So um, it was crazy. I mean, you know, these, these kids are, you know, coming home from school and we're doing pre-production and then waiting for Easter break so we can go to the studio and knock this out. Um, but, you know, they were great musicians. Larry, of course, was just a focused kid from 
day one, and, and he was he had studied with Joe Satriani or was studying with Joe Satriani oh, wow. at the time, and of course Joe was a monster guitarist and a huge influence on him. So it was you know it wasn't a surprise to see him move on to something different and uh, mm-hmm. you know have success with Primus. Yeah, yeah, oh, very interesting, cool. And then, uh, you know, and I do want to mention, I played um, a TT Quick track uh, before you went on, and uh, that that EP is just one of my favorite favorite records. Like, I just, you know, and that particular song that I had played, Child of Sin, I just always like, wow, this song is just so great. It's just got that whole, like, heavy driving thing, and uh, I saw uh, Mark, the vocalist, who is now, now he sings for Accept. Um, yeah, I'm so so happy for a success. I mean, that whole band was great. They were fun to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, I just thought they were great musicians. I was. It was sad that they didn't achieve greater success, but I'm really happy for Mark. Couldn't happen to a nicer guy. And it, it, you know, obviously, you listen to that, I mean, his talent was you know, evident from day one. I mean, the guy was a great singer. So Well, and I think at that period of time, I mean, that was really sort of like the, the days of, the, the glory days of thrash, and T.T. And T. Mm-hmm. Quick was really just, was the low end. I mean, they were super heavy and really catchy but um it was almost like that thrash was too popular and didn't necessarily right. absorb them they I were mean, caught up in that exactly it was a time when it was just how crazy can how fast can right. the music be and how heavy can it be and you know people were just experimenting and they got caught up in that where suddenly their music just didn't fit the bill yeah and then i did see uh mark tornillo he did some guest vocals for doro doro pesh played in new york here and he ended up on stage oh that's great yeah you know doro was a guest singer for the do disciples tour for three dates and you know we're all sharing the bus and doro is just just a great lady and she is adored i mean the fans love doro Mm -hmm. it's crazy i mean they just they love her well and she really loves her fans too you know she's just she's dedicated and you know you can see it in in her performance and all that. And I think she's got a new. She has a new release coming out. I think it's a double CD and a DVD. And I think it's called Twenty Five Years in Rock or something like that. Very, very dedicated, great, great singer. And uh, yes, yeah, so it was yeah. cool. And and, uh, and Chris Caffrey also joined her on stage at one point too, from uh, yeah. from Sabotage. Chris is a great guy too. What a great great guitarist. And he's a riot. I told him he should have his own TV show because when he MCs the TSO stuff, the guy's hysterical. Oh really? Oh yeah. Who knew? I think we've got one more song that we're going to get to. You know, and before we get to this, I do want to just really thank you, you know, for, for your time. And, you know, and, and listeners out there, I mean, it's, it's all going smoothly and we're doing song after song after song. But, you know, Carl and I have been going back and forth for a couple of weeks now, talking about songs, figuring out if, you know, we're going to, if he's going to send me music files and this and that. I mean, he, you know, he, he was kind enough to, to let us hear like one of his demos and that kind of thing. So we're just going back and forth in actual work and, you know, the time that he put in and the time that he's been on the air now that I just want to recognize. And the other thing is that I really do want to just recognize that you were in that position where you were really guiding bands in a, in a wave of music that was new and you really guided the, the thrash scene. That's what I really want to thank you for. So much music has happened since then. And, you know, we don't really know what the face of it would be if there hadn't been Carl Kennedy at the helm of some of those, you know, recording sessions. And, and like you said, you're recording Possessed when they're 16. <laughs> Right. Well, th- you know, I think 
Thank you so much. I really enjoyed doing this. You know, it was fun to go back and, of course, to talk about me, to have it all be focused about me and my... Why not? But then I, you know, it was really an interesting and a fun journey for me to go back and be able to choose songs and do it from the perspective of uh, me as a drummer and these musical influences and, and so on. So I really appreciate the opportunity. I really enjoyed it. Well, I'm so glad, and thanks for joining us. And there's generations of people that have benefited from your involvement in music, so thank you for your contribution. I think you're giving me way more credit than I deserve, but I do think that... Well, but it's all related. Credit. You've, been, you've been doing this a long time and bringing all this kind of music, and this type of show is phenomenal. I mean, it's so diverse, and uh, I've listened to the other shows. It's just great. It's an education, and it's exposing a lot of music. And sometimes bands are great but are forgotten just like des mentioned stray i mean it's a case of that where sometimes a band's great and, and just doesn't get the recognition and and sometimes they just become overlooked completely kind of lost in time you know you keep that stuff alive which is great because the, the music carries on so props to you diane appreciate oh, it well thank you the last track that we're gonna that we're gonna uh, feature is crossroads by cream and it's a live track and uh, the reason i chose this was for a number of reasons and one because eric clapton is a huge uh, hero of mine phenomenal guitarist but ginger baker was a, a major major influence on me as a drummer and as a musician because cream's whole thing and jack bruce like these three guys were, were a major influence and uh, i started with my friend jim nunes and uh, jim and i used to jam and, and jim actually started building nunes jay nunes guitar so if anybody actually owns one interested in selling one I'd be interested in purchasing it but Jim went on to become a great uh, guitar maker and uh, and the Jay Nunes lines Jim and I would just go jam and we started jamming and experimenting with things and it was all because of Cream and it was because of what they were doing and that whole uh, thing that Cream and Hendrix were doing but mostly Cream and listening to the other musicians and kind of finding your grooves and whatever so big influence on me the whole band and I do need to mention though that I think that I actually have a studio I, I have this track on a, uh, and a on a best of I don't think I have the live oh well that's version. fine whatever your websites and all that therods.com you can find all of us there okay very good Carl Kennedy has been my guest I've thanked him a thousand I haven't thanked you a thousand times but I've thanked you enough where I'm going to move on into the music and uh, you're listening to WFMU here's some cream and please stay tuned And that wraps it up for today's podcast. Thank you to Lita Martinez for editing the podcast and to Liz Berg for all the other background work. We are WFMU.